She founded a genetic testing company on one big idea, to create a DNA database so big it could single-handedly move science forward, even help cure deadly diseases. But in 2013, a near disastrous blow. The FDA yanked 23andMe products off the market. This, as CEO Ann Wojcicki had to face a very public divorce from her husband, Google co-founder Sergey Brin. Two years later, Wojcicki and 23andMe have made a remarkable comeback with its first FDA-approved consumer product, new funding, and a $1.1 billion valuation. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, 23andMe CEO and co-founder, Ann Wojcicki. Thank you. And so great to have you here. Thanks, Thanks for doing this. Yeah, anytime. The last two years for you have been crazy. I mean, it could have been disastrous for the company, but now you are back on good terms with the FDA. How do you feel about where you are right now? I feel great. Like I, I'm, uh, I'm super proud of the company and what we've accomplished because I think when you have to slog through and you just have to put your head down and know that there's a lot of work ahead of you and you're not going to see a reward for a couple years, um, it's hard. I almost feel like that was just, like we just climbed the first flight of stairs, but we're still climbing the Empire State Building. So, so we just... There's a lot more to go. It's amazing. We're back on the market. Um, we have um, we have an incredible product. We've completely redesigned everything. And what I'm really excited about is that this is the first chapter in a whole new book for 23andMe. So you now have the first FDA-approved consumer genetic test that a consumer can get without. Right. So we have the first FDA-cleared set of reports where mm -hmm. we can actually um, consumers can go and buy things like cystic fibrosis test mm -hmm. without having to go through a genetic counselor or a physician. And so they can buy that directly from 23andMe.com and, um, and get that information. And this is a test that tests for recessive genes, so things that you might be able to pass on to your kids, for Correct. Example, so something right? like cystic fibrosis that you might pass on to your children, but then also other things, so things like your eye color, which is just interesting. It teaches people about genetics and then things like caffeine metabolism, which again is just really interesting, or lactose intolerance mm -hmm. as well. I would love it if you could take me back to that day where you got that now infamous letter from the FDA. So it was November 22nd, 2013, um, and we were actually at an off-site planning for our future. So we were um, we were all in great moods because we were we'd hired a great number of people. We had a number of people actually had started that week. And I think what we learned after that moment is how much that there actually was a disconnect between what we thought we were trying to do with the FDA and what the FDA actually really needed us to do. Did you think for a moment like, oh my goodness, I could lose the company? It took a while to to understand, and I think that once um, you know, there's probably about six weeks time period there where. We talked to a number of lawyers, we talked to the FDA, we talked to groups, and it became really clear that um, there weren't, that the option, there was no easy option forward. So did you ever and even consider selling the company? Like seriously no. consider that? The idea that the consumer is empowered and that genetic testing is going to be a foundation for healthcare in the future is just core to my being. And I'm wedded to this company for the rest of my life. So I was, I'm not interested in selling and I wasn't interested in ever sort of closing up mm -hmm. shop and saying, ah, oh, this is too hard. Right. It was just a question of saying, you know what, we entirely need to refocus, we need to hire the right people. We had a major miscommunication. We need to make sure that we're actually executing the right way. Well, as you said, it was an arduous process. I mean, you hired a regulation chief. You hired people who, you know, could better interact with Washington. You know, how did you get there? It was literally me picking up the phone and calling everyone that I knew and saying, 
Um, what are the right lawyers to talk to in D.C.? Who are the heads of regulatory teams that I should talk to? I'd say sort of the anchor of sort of helping figure out what the path forward was going to be was when we hired Kathy Hibbs of Genomic Health. Mm -hmm. And she was just, she had a tremendous amount of experience with genomic health. And so she understood genetics. She understood FDA, added an element of structure for the company that people could see the path that we were taking and then people wanted to join on. There's so much more you want to accomplish, like the test for breast cancer and Alzheimer's. Those haven't been approved. What's the progress on that? It's top of my priority list to think about because customers really want breast cancer results. They really want Alzheimer's. So those are the types of things that we're talking to the FDA about what is that path going to look like mm -hmm. to, to move that forward. So I don't have any updates yet on that. Your original idea was to give consumers access to their own data and amass so much data that you could single-handedly move science forward. You say now you have a million customers. I mean, is this the single biggest DNA database out there? It's definitely the biggest one that is being used for research. Um, and I think, again, it was what was exciting for me about 23andMe and what we were trying to do is that it was a hypothesis that if we actually have essentially the world's healthcare data, so all this, your genetic information, everything about what you eat and how you exercise and your medical conditions and what you respond well to, that with all this information, we're gonna be able to understand patterns and we're gonna be able to understand the genetic basis of disease. We're gonna understand the genetic basis for why you might respond to a therapy or why you don't. And so in my dream world, I can imagine, I walk into the physician and they say, and based on all the data that you've given us, mm -hmm. you're a couple years away from being diabetic. Mm -hmm. And so then if you want to make that change, then you need to do X, Y, and Z. And that's my hope here is that you can actually, by having so much data mm -hmm. and by understanding your, your, your predisposed risks, mm -hmm. that you can actually make behave conscious choices about what you're doing on a daily basis to mitigate those risks. Your dad was a physics professor. Your mom was an educator. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. So I grew up on Stanford campus. Uh, I have two older sisters. You know, it's interesting because I didn't, I grew up, next to people who didn't do things for money. They did things because they loved it and that they were really interested in it and they were constantly questioning. And this idea that you just question all the time was just sort of core to me. Your sister is Susan Wojcicki, the CEO of YouTube. Your other sister, Janet, is an epidemiologist at UCSF. How do you all relate uh, to each other? We see each other a lot. Um, I mean, to me, in, in my world, like, nothing has changed. My sisters are still my sisters. Like, yeah. they come over, and we still, like, literally every time they come for dinner, they steal my clothes, especially my sister Susan. Like, we see each other at events now all the time. So now it's, like, really fun. We're like, wow, we're, like, both invited. Like, let's go. Like, we went to the Oscars <laughs> together, and it's really fun. Awesome. What do you think it is about your family and your upbringing that bred three very successful daughters in completely different disciplines. I mean, I think the core element is that we all do what we really love and that we all learn to, uh, in part, like learn to take feedback really well. I think that there's very few things that people could say to me that actually truly insult me or that I take offense at. We just were raised in a way where we became, I think, relatively confident in ourselves and, and um, none of us do things f just for the money. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we do things that we really believe in and that we're really passionate about. So you went to Yale? You majored in biology. Yes. You also were a competitive figure skater. I skated. And yes. ice hockey player. Yeah. <laughs> then went into to health investing. You were an health health analyst. And I randomly got a job offer on Wall Street. And I originally said no to the job. And and two weeks later, I called them back and I said, Well, you know, I think 
I think babysitting's not really that interesting. Maybe I should go to Wall Street. How did you go from Wall Street to Silicon Valley? I invested for 10 years, and I did. Um, I was investing in everything from birth to death. I love meeting with um, scientists and hospitals and just understanding how the whole entire healthcare system worked. But the more that I dug into it, the more that I recognized how much it's a business. And I went to one meeting back in 2005, and I realized like there's a thousand people here all working on how are they going to maximize the billing outcomes for the patients coming in so they can take home as much money as possible. Mm -hmm. And I just realized the system's never going to change. And for me, that was sort of me throwing in the towel, that as much as I'm investing and I believe that there's such potential, the healthcare system that I'm seeing, that I'm investing in, isn't the healthcare system that I want. And so for me, it was all about start a movement where the consumers actually have a voice. At a certain point, you met Sergey Brin, the co-founder of Google. Your sister Susan rented her garage to him. Well, I met Sergey because he they'd started Google in my sister's house, um, and so um, so sometimes I used to joke like I couldn't avoid him because he was always there, um, <laughs> and we'd be washing dishes and we'd see them in the other room. They were just there, and so I used to hang out at Google all the time because I, for one, my sister was there and it was free food and it was fun, and so I got to know Sergey and. Then, what was that like for you being, you know, on the front lines of the founding of Google? I think the thing that Sergey and, and Larry, as um, we spent a lot of time together, I think the things that I was most inspired with is that they didn't start it because they wanted money. They started it because, like, they really had the dream of having the world's information on their laptop. Like, I remember at one point, Larry was like, hey, we could have sold the company and then we would have been professors and life would have been good, too. They did things in their own way. Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, I would complain to Larry about, um, about the healthcare space and, and how much I felt like healthcare was just dysfunctional and this and that. And he's like, well, look, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. And that was kind of one of those calls to action. Like, that was very much them. Like, like well, if, it, if it's bad, then fix it. One of the things you learned early on was that Sergey was predisposed to Parkinson's disease. Right. And that became a critical part of the story of 23andMe mm -hmm. and the way that you communicated, you know, what you guys were trying to achieve. The discovery came out right around the time that we were mm -hmm. starting 23andMe. And I had talked to some of the like, externals, like physicians and scientists, about getting Sergey tested. And I was, I was talked out of it. Or they, they told me, essentially, like, what would you do with the information? Even if he did have it, what would you do? Mm -hmm. And, um, and again, I found that really offensive. Like, how dare you tell me whether or not information is valuable for me? Like, it should be my choice. Yeah. So I was joked, I was like, well, it was convenient that we had a really spectacular science team. And so they put the mutations that we were looking for on the chip. And I remember I, I was sitting at the kitchen table and sort of like called one of the scientists. I was like, I think, you know, Sergey has this mutation. Is that what that means? And then, and his mom has two copies of it. Is that what that means? And, and they were surprised. Like, they hadn't seen a lot of people who had two copies of that mutation, mm -hmm. and Sergey had one. And that definitely, getting that information definitely catapulted us onto a whole new journey of being really involved with Michael J. Fox and starting the 23andMe Parkinson's community. You say you've discovered new insights about Parkinson's, for example, that could lead to a cure or help lead to a cure. So we've made a number of interesting genetic discoveries about Parkinson's. So we have a Parkinson's, we have somebody who leads the Parkinson's team. We actually have a big, um, some, some projects that we're actually talking about doing, really understanding the genetic mutation specifically mm -hmm. that Sergey has. So he has the, something called LERC2 and we're talking about actually what are some of the big things that we're going to be able to do there with pharma. Sergey has been a critical part of your story and you guys are now officially divorced. Mm -hmm. You have two kids and two companies between you. You know, 
when there's so much wealth involved and you're under so much scrutiny, how do you even go through a process like that? It's complicated. That's all I can say. It's complicated. But it, but I think it's, again, part of it is I think divorce is never easy, but I think that it's, you know, we're very good friends. Um, we, get, you know, see each other almost on a daily basis, and we're really supportive of each other. And I think that that's sort of the rea new, it's the new reality of relationships. You're a single working mom. Do you have any advice or any learnings from this sort of period in your life? I think that you just have to sort of accept that you do the best that you can. My mom would call and she'd be like, what are you? I'm like, it's 10 o'clock at night and my kids and I are eating ice cream. And I was like, you know, look, we just needed, like, they're not going to bed, like, we just needed the ice cream. And I think that there's moments where you just sometimes, like, it's hard. And, and you do the best that you can do. And I think part of it is also being gentle on yourself that like you can't necessarily do everything. And again, I think part of what I think Surya and I have done really well is like you really optimize for finding the best in everybody and, and focus on the friendship. And you live in this Silicon Valley <laughs> bubble. Like we talked about earlier, like you do seem so normal. Yeah. Uh, how do I think you we just focus on being normal? I don't know. That. Like part of it, how like, do you stay normal? You stay focused on the things that are important. Like I volunteer in the school and I you know make sure that the kids do their homework and I see my family all the time I still see all my friends you've been you know really active in and your sister as well as you know this issue of women in technology and the lack thereof how much progress have you seen and how much progress do you think there still is that needs to be done there's an imbalance and it needs to change and I think that the best things that like that's to me is a 10-year issue like I feel like the other issue that's bubbling up now is sort of getting ethnic diversity mm -hmm. in tech so you don't necessarily have to be the best at something in order to really have an impact everyone's really good at something and I think it's really important that women understand like they have a multitude of different types of roles that they can have in tech and part of I feel like my job and my sister's jobs is like to not be intimidated and I frequently have said like like there's men there's women and then there's like, and you try to work with the men and the women and you just avoid and there can be like men and women who are just like a pain that you don't want to work with right. but just try to really find those people and those anchor people who are going to support you. So I do want to talk to you about Theranos given your own dealings with the FDA. What do you think about Elizabeth Holmes and the situation that's unfolding with Theranos? I know Elizabeth. I have spent a lot of time with her. I have a lot of respect for her mission and what she's trying to do. Um, but I have stayed out of sort of knowing like the details of it. I think healthcare is changing quite a bit. And I think people are always going to be really skeptical. And I think then it's the onus is on us um, to be really transparent. I understand healthcare and what she's trying to do is, is hard. But after 12 years, I mean, do you, does it seem like it should be more evolved at this point? I'm hugely supportive of this idea that I can walk into any center and I can, I don't need a physician right. and I could just have a finger prick and get my information. I think that people just want to see, understand the technology and understand the data. And I think that, um, and I, and I get that concern because people are making life and death situation, you know, right. calls based on this data. And so they want to understand the why of actually how these things are happening. The thing is, this is a $10 billion company. People think it's a fraud. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you think it's a fraud? Do you think this is possible, what she's trying to do? I'm sure it's possible. Everything that I know about Elizabeth, like, she's somebody who works incredibly hard. Like, I've seen her discipline and how much she's working. Um, so again, I'm not close enough to the company to know about the technology, but I think that it's what everybody wants to know. Everyone's excited about potential of new technology and people want to understand what that technology actually is. How do you walk that line between protecting your technology, your trade secrets, and 
being transparent with the industry. She's not required to have the transparency that people are asking for. And I think that's part of this, this disconnect that's happening now is the FDA has put out guidance now where they're trying to actually regulate that whole industry. If that is the type of call that the FDA is making, then it'll actually be good to actually have that same transparency across all diagnostics. Mm -hmm. When you're in the middle of a crisis situation, it's always hard to ever evaluate. And I think that's why it's the media's job, like you guys are, are all digging in. And part of this, the truth comes out, then when you are executing and when you have more FDA approvals, all those things will speak to what the reality is. Mm -hmm. And right now we just, you know, right now there's a lot of discussion. So let's talk about the future of 23andMe. You now share data with mm -hmm. Genentech mm -hmm. and Pfizer. Correct. And the goal is to incorporate all of this data into drug discovery. How is the drug invention program going in-house? I love it. So I'm super, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about it. And so for people who have a disease of an unmet need, like um, you know Parkinson's is obviously one, or multiple sclerosis, or chronic fatigue, or any of these autoimmune diseases, like if we can actually use all this data to translate it into something meaningful, that's that's just a spectacular reward for our customers. So what diseases are you focused on? I know you've been doing a lot of work on lupus, for example. We're doing lupus with Pfizer. Uh -huh. um, and so we have a number of, of partnerships that we're actually doing with pharma companies. Mm -hmm. So lupus, inflammatory bowel disease, Parkinson's is a big mm -hmm. initiative. Um, we're just about to launch a few others. Are you gonna do human testing yourself here? What we wanna do and what we've learned really with pharma is like pharma will react best if we can come to them almost with a, a, a target mm -hmm. or a compound with some clinical background, some some data about actually how that's functioning. Mm -hmm. So there's a much higher likelihood of success if we can actually come with that level of information and then help move that forward. So and that means you would, would do human testing here? Potentially, not, I mean, not physically right <laughs> here, um, but we would start doing potentially some of our own clinical research for sure. Now there is competition out there. Ancestry.com does some similar things. They have a partnership with Calico, which is Google's project to end death or cure death. Do you see, though, Google and Calico as competition? No. Everything that we do here is focused on genetics and engaging the consumer and making really interesting, engaging products for them. Calico also is purely focused on, I mean, they're, they're focused on, on the anti-aging. But I also, um, you know, I always wish all these companies well because I think it will expand the entire industry. And I want to translate all this information into really meaningful therapeutics mm -hmm. so that we can then come back and say the same way hepatitis C has been cured, I want to come and say like, oh, you know, we developed the cure for lupus. When I think about my success moment, it will be when we have that kind of cure mm -hmm. that came because like millions of people came together mm -hmm. and they shared their data. And because of that, we were able to create something. I, that, that to me is Eureka. Do you have any plans to go public? So, no, I mean, I think part of, we're not, I'm not eager to be a public company. I'm absolutely not opposed to it at some point, um, but it's just a question of finding the right time. So we'll find, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. There's definitely, there's definitely pros and cons. So looking back, is there anything that you would have done differently? Oh, for sure, every day. <laughs> when you're pioneering, you're always gonna make mistakes. When I think back on it, like we hired Andy Page, who's president, um, we almost hired him like five years earlier, and yeah, we should have. <laughs> that would have really been much better. There's definitely easier business models than what we have chosen to do, um, but we believe so core in what we're doing, and I think in the long run, it's gonna have a massive impact on society. And I think back on when we started the company, and it was like, I mean, we like had a, like the lone voice or the megaphone, like own your data, and it would echo. And so, like the fact that it's there, like it's happening, and I see 
in this super exciting world now where almost like in 1996 when the internet hadn't, like it was just starting, mm -hmm. like the landscape, it's virgin territory. And I see all like the little buds, like it's all starting to sprout up. And I think that there really can be this consumer healthcare world that is just spectacular. And it really creates something that's parallel to the existing world. So it's super complimentary, but it's gonna reflect more what you and I actually want for our healthcare. Well, I hope to see it. <laughs> Ooh, we'll keep talking. <laughs> and we'll just see you. Thank you. Me. Thank you so much for doing oh, this. Yeah, it's been thanks. great to have you. Yeah, thanks for interviewing Thank me. Thank you. Yeah.